Well, good morning again. You can open up your Bibles to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter 1. In 2015, Steve Harvey made a mistake. I don't know if you remember this mistake. Uh, It has most definitely haunted him as he's become the center of countless memes and jokes and now even sermon illustrations. I'm sure you remember hearing the report on the news of how Steve was hosting the Miss Universe pageant. He crowned Miss Columbia as the winner. And after a few minutes of celebration, a few minutes of celebration... Uh, Steve actually handling the situation with a lot of integrity, taking personal responsibility, uttered the statement, I've made a terrible mistake, and came out saying, okay, folks, I have to apologize. Uh, It went on to share that Miss Columbia was actually the runner-up and Miss Philippines was actually the winner. Harvey got the wrong person, and it made for an incredible Incredibly difficult and awkward situation. A more heartbreaking instance of mistaken identity took place in 2006. Maybe you remember the names Laura Van Ryn and Whitney Sarek. On April 26th of 2006, Robert Spencer was driving on a highway when he fell asleep at the wheel and crashed his truck into a school van In the opposite lane, four students and one staff member of Taylor University in Indiana were killed in this accident. Among the dead students was Laura Van Ryn, whose body was mistaken for that of Whitney Sarek, who survived but was seriously injured. Believing that their daughter was dead, Whitney's distraught family buried Laura's body while Laura's family watched over Whitney as she recovered, thinking she was Laura. What a difficult situation. The mix-up was discovered after Laura awakened from a coma and identified herself as Whitney. Apparently, both ladies had blonde hair and similar features, even though they could be easily differentiated. And the mix-up happened because emergency medical services mistook Laura's ID for Whitney's. Harvey mixing up the winner of the pageant, emergency personnel mixing up ideas of these two women. These are difficult circumstances that impacted many people's lives with heartache and difficulty. Yet there is the identity of one that impacts every single individual on the planet. Every single individual alive that will ever live must get this identity correct. Getting the identity of this one right is of critical importance, and it is Jesus. You cannot be wrong about his identity. To miss the mark on Jesus is to miss the mark on Christianity. If you do not have the right Jesus, you do not have Christianity, salvation, forgiveness of sins, fellowship with God, freedom of condemnation, eternal life, and more. He is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Everything is built upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul knows the importance of this. In verses 3 through 14, 
of Colossians 1, we see this robust prayer of Paul's for the Colossians. And in verse 13, Paul references what God has done for believers who, is, who are transferred to Jesus' kingdom, and in Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then Paul seamlessly transitions from his prayer into one of, if not the most magnificent presentations of who Jesus is. Paul knew the eternal significance of getting Christ right. And he knew the very real spiritual attacks that the Colossians were facing in regards to the person of Jesus Christ. The Gnostic heresy was a very direct attack on the person of Jesus. They were advocating for practices of elevating the traditions of men and worship of angels. Elevation of spiritual superstitions and all of these were to detract from the person of Jesus Christ to take away from his work. And in chapter 2 of Colossians, we'll see in detail the attacks that were being made. But before Paul addresses those things, he puts forth in a glorious, wonderful, beautiful manner the reality of who Jesus is. And we're going to start looking at that this morning these attacks on the person and work of Jesus have not gone away. Denying and neglecting the reality of the deity and work of Jesus Christ is a common practice. Constant attacks on what Christianity is about, on the nature of Christ, the elevation of causes and concerns as what defines Christianity when it is Christ who defines Christianity and everything must flow out through him. How timely is this for us to have our minds renewed afresh with the richness of who Jesus is? So this morning, let's look together. We're going to read verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1. Starting in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. 
we looked together our first few weeks or our first week in this book that the book of Colossians could be summarized in the following statement. I have it up there for you on the screen. This is the, the summary or the theme of the book of Colossians, and it's this, an unwavering conviction regarding the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ fortifies faith and enables faithfulness in the believer. An unwavering conviction regarding the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ fortifies faith and enables faithfulness in the believer. In these verses that we're going to look at today, Paul sets forth the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. We will see more of Christ as we make our way through this book. But in these verses, Paul, in glorious fashion, sets forth the fact that Jesus is supreme over everything. And in so being supreme, he is also the source of all reconciliation. And if we hold to this reality of who Christ is, what we will find as we continue to work our way through this book is that this reality of who Jesus is, if we hold to it, it will both fortify our faith and enable faithfulness in our lives. So for this morning, we're going to see Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency expressed in several realities. Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency are expressed in four realities that we see in our text. Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency are expressed in four realities regarding who he is. Four realities of who Jesus is are unpacked that demonstrate his supremacy and sufficiency. Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency are expressed in four realities. Now, I want to put all of these realities on the screen for you just for a moment. And you can look at them there. We'll read them together. Number one, Jesus is preeminent, is the preeminent one over creation. And then number two, Jesus is the eternal sustainer of all things. Number three, Jesus is the head of the church. And number four, Jesus is the exclusive means of reconciliation. This morning, we're going to look at the first three of these realities, and then we will unpack the last one next week together, Lord willing. So, Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency is first expressed in this reality. Jesus is the preeminent one over creation. Jesus, number one, is the preeminent one over creation. Look at the beginning of verse 15. Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God. The he Paul is referring to is obviously the beloved son who was referenced back in verse 13. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And the word for image used here is icon. It is where we get our English word icon. And this word means to be a likeness or resemblance or reflection of something else. It could be used to represent an image on a coin or a picture, but it also could be used to describe a visible manifestation of something. And that's how Paul is using it here in the prepositional phrase of the invisible God helps bring clarity to what Paul is saying. God who is unseen, the invisible God, is made known in the person of Jesus. Jesus is not a plaster representation of what God looks like, but in essence, the exact representation of who God is. Mankind was made in the image of God. It was something given to mankind 
that represents realities of who God is, yet Jesus is the complete, perfect, visible representation of God. And in this statement, it is a clear way of expressing or demonstrating or showing the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God. He is in complete form the image of God. Nothing else is needed to see God's essence more clearly than the person of Jesus Christ. In this statement, it would not be confused or misunderstood that Paul is equating Jesus to God. And his next statement makes this even more clear. Look at the second half of verse 15. Paul says he is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. This statement actually sits in opposition to the reality that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What that means is that this statement is bringing clarity to the prior one. It expounds upon the first idea. This statement about Jesus brings clarity and completion to the first. Now, we in our culture oftentimes miss the significance behind the idea of the firstborn. That term for us is most often used, almost exclusively used, to represent a sequential reality. And it at times is used that way in Scripture, but it oftentimes is also used not to communicate temporal order, but honored status and supremacy. In these instances, the prefix first in firstborn isn't meant to communicate sequence, but it's used as a superlative. Moses communicates this idea in Exodus 4.22 when referring to Isaac's second sequentially born son Jacob as Israel, that is, Jacob is my son, my firstborn. Also, this title in Colossians isn't the first reference to the Messiah in this way. Psalm 89, 27, referencing the coming Messiah, says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This passage is often used by other religions to attempt to represent Jesus as a created being and not being God. And this understanding couldn't be farther from the truth. In fact, in verse 16, Paul says all things were created by him. He could not be a created being if all things were created by him. It is crystal clear in the context and in the language of what's going on that Christ is not the first creature, but that he is the supreme one over all of creation. He is the highest rank. He is preeminent. Preeminent means superior, above, surpassing, and Jesus is this in every way over all of creation. Uh, Nothing in creation competes with Jesus in regard to this. He is the highest of highs. He is the mightiest in power. He is the supreme in wisdom. Everything about him is wholly supreme over all creation. So when we think back to Paul saying he's the image of God and this statement about him being supreme over all of creation, we are seeing the reality that Jesus is God in the flesh. And he is above all. Jesus is not a lesser being that needs something added to him. He is the supreme one in every way. 
And then look at verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Paul continues to expound upon this reality of Christ's preeminence. Why does Jesus have this supremacy over all creation? Well, for by him all things were created. Paul is showing the reason Christ possesses rulership or is supreme or is preeminent over all of creation. It's not because he was the first one created, but because he was the one who created it. It's not because he was the first one created. He created all things. Paul literally says, Christ is the creator of the all. There's nothing outside of the Godhead that finds its origin outside of Jesus Christ. Paul gives this all statement, but so that there is no confusion, he says, look again at verse 16, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Jesus brought all things into existence through his imminent power, and he did this by speaking over six 24-hour days. Excuse me. Every atom was brought into existence by Jesus. And just think about that for a moment. The average person is made up of seven followed by 27 zeros atoms. That's seven billion, billion, billion atoms. And each human, there's a lot of atoms in this room right now. And then consider every created thing on this planet. And this planet is one of billions upon billions, an uncountable number. And Jesus created it all. And not only this, but all of the laws and purposes which guide the creation and govern the universe, all of these things created by Jesus. Paul says the the visible and invisible, the things we see, the things we don't see. And Paul then gives four descriptions. Thrones, that is a seat of authority. Dominions, that is those with power or lordship. Rulers, this carries the notion of, of primacy. And then authorities is one who possesses the right to rule others. And it's likely that Paul is referring in these things to the unseen spiritual realm of rulers and angelic beings to demonstrate Christ's supremacy over all as the one who in all of these things is over them. That was one of the areas false teachers were attacking. They were worshiping angels, elevating them and reducing Christ. And Paul is saying all of them, all of them, created by Jesus. Paul is saying, why is Jesus preeminent over all creation? Why is he supreme? Because he created everything and gave life to every living being. Any position that is held and power that is possessed is originated from, it is given by Jesus Christ. 
And then I want you to notice something in verse 16. Look at the beginning of verse 16. Paul says, by him all things were created, meaning all things found their origin out of Jesus. Then later in the verse, all things have been created through him, which means he was the creative means. And then get this, look at the last three words of verse 16, and for him. Everything in existence is for Jesus. Christ is the origin, the means, and the purpose or the end of all creation. Christ is the ultimate goal of all creation. Everything, everything is for the benefit of Jesus. He created all things for his own good pleasure, and his glory is the ultimate purpose. Now, two things. First of all, can we just marvel together at Jesus? How truly magnificent he is, powerful, majestic. Secondly, how much do you give thought to creation being for your pleasure versus for Christ's pleasure? How much do we think about the things and the happenings around us, the things that we possess as being divinely created for divine purposes, for the benefit of Jesus Christ, versus all of creation should be for my benefit, for my pleasure, for my enjoyment? It seems far too often we are tempted to bring senses of entitlement into our lives of how we think things should be and how we think they should go. And we, we forget that Jesus created all things, is ruling all things, and he created them all for his purposes. We'll unpack this a little bit more in the next point. And the next point really flows out of or supports this first one, demonstrating Christ's preeminence over creation. And we see next Christ's supremacy and sufficiency is expressed th through the reality that, number two, Jesus is the eternal sustainer of all things. He is the eternal sustainer. He is the preeminent one over all of creation. He has all authority. He is fully supreme as the creator, and he is also the eternal sustainer of all things. Look at verse 17. Paul gives two statements in this verse. He says, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, the word before can carry both the idea of either significance or rank, again. It could also carry the idea of time, like we looked at the possibility in verses 15. In light of his statement of Jesus being the firstborn or preeminent over creation positionally, it seems more likely that this statement isn't a restatement of that idea, but Paul is demonstrating the eternality of Jesus in this statement. When he says he is before all things, he is demonstrating the eternality of Jesus. And so in these two phrases, it seems Paul is expressing both the eternal nature of Jesus and his omnipotent power to sustain everything, to hold everything together. And Paul uses emphatic language here. He says, he and no other is before all things. 
He himself exclusively is before all things. Jesus is God, and as God is the exclusive pre-existing one, the eternal one. He has a, a timeless existence. Jesus existed prior to every other thing. Jesus predates all things. Jesus pre-existed this temporal world. He predated all things, existed prior to every other thing, and this reality sets Jesus apart from all others. The scripture repetitively expresses this reality of the eternality of Jesus. Jesus said in John 8, 58 and 59, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He's referenced it as the first and the last in Revelation 1. And to make a statement to the eternal nature of Christ is to only solidify the reality of the deity of Christ. No one else holds this reality. Only God is eternal. And not only is Jesus eternal in nature, but he is the eternal divine sustainer of all things, all of creation. He is not only supreme in relation to his eternality, but his power is supreme and is sustaining all things. This word for hold together communicates the idea of continues or endures, exists, or to cohere. And the statement in him, all things hold together, demonstrates this reality. It demonstrates the reality that there is a continual exertion of power by Christ that is causing the universe to be sustained. This is an abiding state. This entire universe presses on in existence in Christ. Jesus is the binding agent that keeps our world in motion. Every molecule, every atom is held in place by Jesus constantly. Scientists can't explain how an atom holds together, much less the universe, yet we know the truth. We know the truth. They are all held together by the power of the word of Christ Jesus. Jesus brings cohesion. He brings order to the universe which he created. Every motion in the universe is allowed and enabled by Jesus Christ, by his power. Each of us only exist at this very moment because Jesus sees fit not only to allow it, but to enable our very existence. Every beat of our heart, every moment where we experience gravity that keeps us from floating away, every breath that we take as oxygen saturates our blood, Every molecule is functioning under the divine power of Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign creator of all things by a word. And he sustains all things at every moment. This is Jesus Christ. All of the laws of nature 
that we just assume are there naturally out of his creative order are only working continually because he is making it so. Not because he set them in motion and then leaves them to themselves, but because he constantly sustains them. The universe would fall apart if Christ, but for a moment, withheld his sustaining power. It is all held together by him. The universe would disintegrate without him. One commentator said, he is the tuning fork to which all created reality adjusts and conforms. What a great picture of the greatness of Christ. Think about every detail that must continue for us to exist. Jesus holds them all together. All together. Our hearts need to be properly impressed by Jesus. Jesus is the eternally existing, constantly sustaining, sovereign God. And get this, we worry and we rebel and we complain and we grumble over our circumstances. The universe holds its very existence and continuance to Jesus Christ. And we complain about how he's doing it. Have you thought about the reality that any moment of discontentment and grumbling about things in your life is a moment of discontentment and grumbling against God? More specifically, against Jesus and how he's doing it? As we see Jesus rightly, we need to be humbled. Every single one of us. We see his power and his sustaining work, his creative work, and as we work through this passage, we will see his great love and compassion and grace and his reconciling work as well. Jesus is trustworthy in every single way. We cannot remind ourselves too often of this truth about our Savior. We need to remind ourselves of these things. Is, in consideration of these truths, is there, just, is there anything we can't trust the Lord with? We can trust him. You do trust him. This church has been through very difficult trials over the last several years. I'm so grateful for the way that you hold fast to who Jesus is because he has sustained us as we have done so. And yet, once again, we must press on and we must continue to renew our hearts and our minds with these realities of the greatness of our Savior, Jesus. Well, we see not only does God hold every physical creation in order through his sovereign power, but he is also the source of life, direction, order in the spiritual realm. 
in our spiritual lives. And this leads to our next point, the third one that we, the last one we'll look at this morning. And this is Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency are expressed in this third reality of who he is, that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Look at verse 18, and we'll look at the first half. He is also head of the body, the church. Up to this point, Paul has been demonstrating the supreme power of Jesus over all of creation, and now Paul begins to set forth the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus specifically in the spiritual realm for his people. The unique relationship that Jesus has within the church, and Paul uses an illustration of the head and the body. And this describes the unique and precious relationship that Jesus has with his church. And in this imagery of Jesus as the head, we understand that the head represents authority and direction and control over. And that is Jesus' right position over his church. The head coordinates and directs all of the different functions of the body and enables them to work together towards whatever the goal of the head is. And this reality, Paul sets forth, is a, a direct, again, a direct attack on the, on the Gnostic heresy that is, that is attacking the church in Colossae. The Gnostics, they, they did not hold to Christ as the head. Look to the right just a little bit in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19 of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Paul says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated out without cause by his fleshly mind. And then look at verse 19 and not holding fast to the head from which the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. The Gnostics were not holding fast to the head. They were not holding fast to Christ. Yet Christ holds this position regardless of the thoughts of his skeptics. And in this simple statement, Paul demonstrates that Jesus, as the head of the church, is the supreme one over the church. Christ, as the head of the body, represents the reality that Christ gives the church its life. Christ gives the church its energy, its power, its purpose. Christ is not one who serves the church. He is the head of the church. Christ does not serve the church's purposes. The church submits and serves Christ's purposes. Christ holds authoritative leadership over the church. Paul is going to unpack more Christ's rule over the spiritual realm and continue to set forth the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in regards to Jesus as the exclusive means of reconciliation, and we'll look at that next week. But as we consider what we have looked at this morning, you have to be confronted with Christ. You have to consider, do, do I know this Christ? 
Have I been deceived? Have I, have I thought of Christ as something other than what Scripture represents him to be, other than the reality of who he is? This, this person, Jesus Christ, the one who is above all, who created all things and upholds all things in his divine power, is the same one who condescended, came to earth, took on flesh, lived perfectly in accordance with the Father's standard of what is right and holy and good. And then he went to a cross made of wood that was being held together by his very own power as he created the tree that they took that wood from. He was nailed to it, crucified, bore the wrath of God for all who would repent and believe upon the cross, suffered agony and righteous wrath of God so that those whom he would save would not have to suffer, though they deserved it. So that we who believe, we who have been granted grace from God and are reconciled to God, may have fellowship now with God, possessing eternal life, even this very moment in him, getting to enjoy fellowship with him for all eternity. That is our Savior. He is Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, you need to. If you don't know him in this way, you need to. You, you cannot afford to get it wrong as it comes to Jesus. We must have the right Christ. We must know him. And if you do know him, praise the Lord that you do. Let us ever renew our minds with the reality of who he is. Let us never grow bored or tired or apathetic in our disposition to our Savior. He is above all else. Who else is there? What else is there? Where else would we go but to Jesus Christ in all of life's circumstances, in all of life's joys, in all of life's trials? We must cling to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, we thank you for your word that we can see clearly, enabled by your spirit, what you have revealed in scripture, that we can know Christ because of his work, because of your love, that we can be reconciled to you, that we can entrust ourselves to you. Lord, I pray that we would do so, that we would depend on you in all things, that we would treasure the one who is truly worthy of being valued, the one who is supreme, the one who is eternal, the one who is preeminent, the one who is sufficient for all that we need, that we would cling to Jesus Christ, and that in so doing, we would find peace and hope and grace, and mercy, and joy. 
satisfaction far beyond anything that this world could offer in Jesus Christ. Help us to do these things. And Lord, we know that you created all things for, for Jesus, for him. And so, Lord, we ask these things for the purpose of glorifying the one whom we must love, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you one last time this morning to stand and let's respond to God's word in worshipful song together.
Once again, we thank you for Jesus. I pray that the things that we have just sung and proclaimed would indeed be true of our hearts, that we would value and treasure Christ above all else. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. We hope you are blessed. Uh, have a great rest of your Sunday. You are dismissed. <laughs>